You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 101. This week starts out with a big thank you to Ben for his support on Patreon. This is not the same Ben that I gave a shout out to last week. And for some reason, we've become quite popular with Ben's. So many Ben's. So Ben and Ben and Ben, thank you. Also, thank you to Raymond for supporting the show at the last possible moment to make it into this episode, as the email appeared in my inbox just as I started recording. This week, we take our psalm narrative out of the fateful month of July and into August. In his book, The Psalm, The Darkest Hour on the Western Front, Peter Hart would say that, quote, in some ways, the study of August and early September is the least rewarding and most utterly depressing chapter in the whole tragic epic of the psalm offensive. The British had the troops, the guns, the ammunition, and even the weather, the perpetual enemy of British generals. And it was all reasonably favorable. Yet the period went by unredeemed by anything that could be considered a success. This was in many ways very true. The British would just keep on attacking and yet gain just as little as they had before. This would all be a build-up to the attacks in September, though, where they would really unveil their new weapon, the tank. But this is all far in the future. Instead, we will first take a look at the tactical problems that the British and French were having while trying to continue to attack against the Germans, before digging into some German accounts of what precisely it was like at the front during this period of fighting. We will then discuss the situation in August and the conversations that were happening by all of the leadership teams at both army headquarters and in Paris and London. We will then close out this episode by taking a quick look at what Haig and Foch were planning for September. Now, one of the problems that the British were having, and which would become even more apparent uh, from August until the end of the battle, was that the constant push and pull between launching attacks and waiting until they were able to launch a bigger attack at some future date was a balance that was very difficult to strike. The problem was that every day that the British waited to build up their strength for an attack was one more day that the British could do, that the Germans could do the same. This became more prevalent as the British began to make some real gains and the battle lines pushed further away from where they started. 
As the British and French advanced, they pushed further and further out into a devastated wasteland that they themselves had shattered with artillery in the opening days of the attack. Roads in these areas were almost non-existent, and the terrain was just a landscape of overlapping shell holes. The intent had always been to push past these areas in the opening attacks and to get out into the open, but this just never happened. On the German side, there was some of this devastation right around the front, but as they were forced to give ground, they were at least moving into areas that were less pulverized, instead of moving on top of it like their enemies were. This made it easier for the Germans to re-establish their supply lines after every major engagement, and this gave both their infantry and, more importantly, their artillery, the ability to recover just a bit faster than the British and French. The idea for the British was still to wear out the Germans, and there's a lot of talk of this in histories and in contemporary accounts of the battle. The situation in August was just a stage of fighting where the British were wearing down the German frontline troops and reserves, and that soon they would finally break them. The British thought that they were close, and while they were certainly grinding away, they drastically underestimated the size of the German manpower mountain that they were chipping away at. This mountain would not be reduced in July or August or September or at any time in 1916, and instead it would last all the way until midway through 1918. There were changes on the German side that we touched on previously, and this was a move away from the nicely defined front line, and a move to spread out their troops into a set of defenses that were harder to target. This involved moving the main positions and machine guns out of trenches and into scattered shell holes and fortifications around the battlefield. This required a different kind of and a different level of preparation from the British and French, and they were slow to adapt their tactics to the new reality, and were even slower to provide their artillery with the proper amount of supplies to take care of the larger number of just sheer square yardage of the battlefield that they found themselves responsible for neutralizing. Now, this did not mean that the Germans did not take advantage of dugouts where they were still available, and they were used to supplement other defenses, but they were no longer the focus. When the men were in them, they found little of the rest, relaxation, and relative safety of the dugouts from before the battle, and instead they found them poorly lit, claustrophobic hellholes that were often seen as death traps instead of real protection. One constant on the battlefield was the supremacy of Allied artillery, and by mid-September the British alone had fired almost 8 million rounds of ammunition, and the Germans were still desperately calling for more guns to be moved into the theater to try and provide some kind of response, but this never happened on the scale that would have been required to alter the balance of power. Lieutenant Spielman of Infantry Reserve Regiment 151 would describe one way in which the situation would affect the infantry at the front. Quote, Everybody had to make do with what they had brought forward in their bread pouches and water bottles. An attempt during the morning of 7th August to supply the company with food and water cost several lives and succeeded only in delivering three loaves, some pieces of bacon, and ten bottles of mineral water. By the third day, the thirst was unbearable. End quote. Reserve Lieutenant George Will would have another perspective. Quote, During the 19th and 20th of August, we find ourselves in the front line. There are no trenches, so we occupy shell holes, seeking shelter behind piled-up banks of earth. Everyone tries to edge forward, as close to the enemy as possible, to escape from the shelling. During the hours of darkness, we dig as hard as we can to link up the craters. 
The whole place is a charnel house, defying description. End quote. One string through all of this hardship was a general appreciation for the British infantry opposite of the Germans, especially in relation to how they fought on both offense and defense. Here is Lieutenant Alphonse Brahm of the Bavarian Infantry Regiment 81. Quote, the general situation and later clearance of the British pockets of resistance. The British soldiers displayed great courage, coolness under fire, and a striking reluctance to take cover. Their main strength in this type of fighting was their masterly use of grenades, with which they had evidently trained with sporting enthusiasm, and their numerous machine guns. End quote. For some reason in my mind, I always picture the Germans as the sides using the grenades, the big stick ones, of course, but the British also had a ton of grenades. Also, I have read this before, but I can't find my source right now, that I've heard that the British were more skilled at throwing their grenades because of the prevalence of cricket before the war, whereas the Germans didn't have a similar throwing sport in their society. Again, I can't find my source on this at the moment, so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, there's completely possible that I'm misremembering. One reason that would constantly be used by Joffre and Haig to justify their continuing their attacks were the casualties that they were forcing upon the Germans. It was true that German casualties were high in a numerical sense, something that we have discussed many times, but it was also true in a qualitative sense as well. By mid-September, the German generals were reporting that more men were reporting sick, desertion and surrender numbers were on the rise, and the number of self-inflicted wounds was increasing as well. All of these were signs of reduced morale and reduced army continuity. These changes became more, much more understandable when you look at what the German units were going through. Let's take as an example the situation of Infantry Regiment 127. This regiment was sent to the front and, in just a matter of days, after being the focus of some British attacks, found itself on the point of, com of complete collapse and had to be moved off the line. However, there were not sufficient reserves to send a new and intact regiment to the front to relieve it, so instead, the only way to put men in the line was to send forward individual battalions of Infantry Regiment 123 and 124. This was bad enough on the surface. Now, sending units to the front piecemeal would never produce the cohesion of a single unit, but it was also bad because the men of regiments 123 and 124 had only been taken off the line four days before, after they themselves had been heavily mauled by attacks. This type of churn of barely getting off the line and then having to go back because another unit was even worse was a churn that would constantly continue, and it just like sort of wore down the spirits of the German troops. This did not mean that the Germans were helpless, though, and certainly were not as close to breaking as Haig and Joffre believed. In fact, they were able to use some units to launch specific attacks against some key positions along the front, like in Devil Wood, where they would move a specially trained unit into place to execute an attack. Here is Jack Sheldon from his book The German Army on the Somme to explain. Quote, there was one new feature which underlined the determination, or perhaps the desperation, of the German Second Army to try and retake the wood, and that was the use of a newly formed Jaeger Storm Battalion III. This unit was one of the first to be converted from the being a normal Jaeger battalion into one that was specially trained in assault tactics and reserved for use in critical situations. Its exacting training had begun in mid-June 1916, 
large numbers of men deemed to be unsuitable for the new task had been transferred to normal line regiments, and it spent July and early August on fitness training and the mastering of new tactics and weapons, such as light mortars and flamethrowers, with which it had been issued. End quote. These type of storm battalions and storm units, or stormtroopers, if you want to jump ahead a bit, these type of units would become a much bigger piece of future attacks, and it's interesting to see them coming to the German arsenal at this point in the war. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. On the Allied side, everything was going, in a word, poorly. For the French, while they had advanced and reached their objectives early in July, they found themselves now stuck in a narrow salient out into the German positions, with the Germans to their south and their river to their north. They had made some effort to widen the salient, to make everything easier on the troops, but they found it quite difficult, as Robert Doughty in Pyrrhic Victory would talk about. Quote, in late July and August, 6th Army operations would take on a regular pattern, an advance of several hundred meters, maybe as much as a kilometer, a vicious close-quarters fight to occupy the objective, and then retain it against German counterattacks. Costly small-scale line-straightening operations to retake what had not been held and secure a dumping-off line with its vital observatories for the next forward move and several days of heavy preparatory bombardment before the process was repeated. End quote. This was a, a sort of bite-and-hold tactic. It was costly, time-consuming, and the French just really weren't up for it. For the French, it was clear that what they needed was for the British to help them, and, and if they were ever going to make any real progress on the Somme. Joffre was very aware of this fact, and he needed Haig's assistance for another reason as well. It was in the late summer of 1916 that the first resistance to Joffre's command started to be heard in the corridors of power in Paris. The whispers were saying that at the very least, Joffre's power should be curtailed to a more reasonable amount. 
The reasoning was clear. After all of their sacrifices, the French had very little to show for them. There were even the faintest beginnings of discussions about replacing Joffre with somebody else. André Maginot, yes, that Maginot, as in the Maginot line, was one of the loudest of the politicians when speaking out against the French commander. He would say, quote, Verdun proves that the commander lives from day to day. He yields the initiative to his adversary instead of imposing his will on him. He has neither method nor energy. He counts on a miracle. He has shown us what he can do. It is necessary to replace him. End quote. All of these discussions got back to Joffre, and for the Somme, it meant that he needed action and for good things to happen and soon. Joffre did not trust the British to be able to launch any effective attacks by this point by themselves without a good amount of French prodding. And in his estimation, Haig had probably dropped as low as he ever would in terms of ability. He thought that the only way to get the British going again was for the French themselves to be more energetic and active. His hope was that through this French activity, he would be able to drag the British along as well. This would result in many discussions during August of a forthcoming great battle on the Somme, a a renewal of the effort seen on July 1st. He hoped to convince Haig to launch this effort before the end of August. However, the attempts to make this happen would instead drag on through most of the month, and by August 20th it was clear that the French were not going to be able to get the British to buy into this plan and the earliest that they could participate in an attack on this size, or a size that the French wanted, would be in the middle of September. For his part, Haig was already pinpointing September as the next big attack right from the beginning of August, so the French just ended up going along with that. Haig would acknowledge to his credit that his army needed a good amount of time to prepare for another large effort. Uh, It was just something that he had to do, and this could only be allowed to occur if no large attacks were launched for a good period of time. This was the correct evaluation of the situation. However, the idea, no matter how valid, is only good if it gets put into practice, which it never would be. You see, while Haig was thinking that he needed to husband his strength, he never really changed his plans to make a bunch of small attacks all along the front, each with its own little objective. That could mean attacking in the south with the intention of helping the French. Like this memo written by Haig says, quote, The first necessity at the moment is to help the French forward on our right flank. For this, we must capture several objectives as soon as possible. These places cannot be taken, however, with due regard to economy of means available. Without careful and methodical preparation, The necessary preparations must be pushed on without delay, and the attack must be launched when the responsible commanders on the spot are satisfied that everything possible has been done to ensure success. And this also included renewed efforts to capture German positions on Pogere Ridge, something that had already cost the British thousands of casualties. So, everything sounds good so far. He's saying that, well, they need to prepare the proper amount, they need to only go forward when they can guarantee success, they need to capture these very critical pieces. But how precisely were the commanders supposed to both husband their strength and launch attacks at the same time? Well, Haig thought he had the answer. Quote, the operations outlined above are to be carried out with as little expenditure of fresh troops and of munitions as circumstances will admit of, 
and in each attack undertaken, a sufficient force must be employed to make success as certain as possible, and to secure the objectives won against counterattack. Economy of men and munitions is to be sought, for not by employing insufficient force for the objective in view, but by a careful selection of objectives." End quote. Let me just take a moment to repeat one piece of that for a bit of emphasis. Quote, operations are to be carried out with as little expenditure of fresh troops and munitions as circumstances will admit of. But in each attack, a sufficient force must be employed to make success as certain as possible. End quote. Talk about wanting to have his cake and eat it too. He was essentially asking his generals to be perfect to attack with precisely the right number of men, precisely the right levels of artillery, precisely the right amount of preparation time. Too little of any of, the, uh, any of these three things would result in failures, all too familiar to the British Army. Too many of any of those things would prevent the troops from properly preparing for the larger attacks with larger, more important objectives in September. It was an impossible situation, and much like most impossible situations, it ended in failure. Most of the time, the men and resources were not available to launch the efforts necessary to achieve the set-forth objectives, and so the attacks got nowhere, just like they had been in all those small attacks in July. In the rare case that there were enough of both men and artillery, they were then often on too small of a front to be able to hold on to their gains from German counterattacks. Haig had created a no-win scenario for his officers and men, a manufactured Kobayashi Maru on the Western Front. And it was not just a failure for August, these small attacks, the, the casualties, the effort. The effects of these failures would continue to be felt until the end of the battle. While the politicians were becoming a bit uncomfortable in Paris, the same thing was happening in London. Just the sheer number of casualties that were reaching the ears of British leadership was enough to cause a moment of pause. This brought about new pushes for actions outside of the Western Front, or for some change to be made to the actions in France and Belgium. But these movements would not instantly change the thinking of the War Committee. However, General Robertson, who was Chief of the Imperial General Staff, would write Haig to say that, quote, the powers that be are becoming a bit uneasy in regard to the situation. The casualties are mounting up, and they are wondering whether we are likely to get a proper return for them. End quote. Haig, being quick to recognize the thinly veiled dig at his decision-making abilities, would fire back a message to London that outlined what he believed to be the purpose of the Somme. And this would be a lengthy note, and this that I'm about to quote is just a small excerpt that is a good outline of the purpose of further attacks. Quote, A, pressure on Verdun relieved. Not less than six enemy divisions, besides heavy guns, have been withdrawn. B, successes achieved by Russia last month would certainly have been stopped by the enemy had the enemy been free to transfer troops from here to the Eastern Theater. C, proof given to world that allies are capable of making and maintaining a vigorous offensive and of driving enemy's best troops from the strongest positions have shaken faith of Germans, of their friends, of doubting neutrals, in the invincibility of Germany, also impressed on the world England's strength and determination and the fighting power of the British race. D. We have inflicted heavy losses on the enemy. In one month, 30 of his divisions have been used up, as against 35 at Verdun in five months. In another six weeks, the enemy should be hard put to find men. E. 
the maintenance of a steady offensive pressure will result eventually in his complete overthrow, end quote. At the end of the day, the initial bark of London would prove to be far stronger than its long-term bite. While there would be a few further questions for Haig, which he was always very good at having an answer for, which is part of why he stayed in command so long, the initial questioning of operations would devolve into nothing more than a somewhat muted conversation about maybe trying to find a different theater in which to launch a new effort. Just the, the conversations that had been going on in London since basically the start of the war. Because you see, rightly or wrongly, the London leaders just did not have the confidence, power, or ability to take the bold steps necessary to change the course of action on the Western Front, and they would not for some time to come. What would change very suddenly was that Romania would enter the war on August 27th by declaring war on Austria-Hungary. This really got the British and French into gear, as they looked both to short-term benefits, like the fact that more German and Austrian troops would have to move to the east, and also they looked into the future and how they could take advantage of the situation in 1917. They believed that Romania would pull enough German troops away to give them a decisive advantage on the Western Front, and so their plans for September began to solidify with that advantage in mind. Little did they know that Romania would be at best a minor distraction for the Germans, and it would be almost completely out of the war by the end of the year. The attack for September was, sort of as always, planned to open up the front, but this time there was at least going to be one thing different, and that would be the presence of a new weapon, the tank. The tank by this point was a vehicle that, while it looked menacing and impressive, was deeply flawed. The biggest problem was that it was simply impossible to keep them running long enough to be really useful on the battlefield. They broke down all the time, but even with this dramatic downside, they still had their benefits. On the testing grounds of Britain and France, whenever Haig saw them demonstrated, he believed that their performance was encouraging, even if others, well, even if not everybody else, shared this belief. Haig was always strongly pushing for their further development. While some of the most difficult issues were being worked on in workshops at the front and in Britain, there were also the problems of how to use the things and to integrate them into the attacks in a 1916 battlefield, and these were proving even harder to solve. It's important to remember that the tank was not an improved version of an older weapon. This was an entirely new weapon system and an entirely new weapon concept that did not have an easily identifiable analog on the modern battlefield. So there were very simple questions to answer, like how many would, need, would be needed for an attack? How concentrated should they be on the front? Should they go forward in groups or alone? Should they target enemy strong points or the weak points where they could move through the enemy line? And this is just a small sample of the questions that British staff officers were asking themselves. They would get their first battlefield test in September 1916, and it would not go very well. It did not help that the goals of the upcoming attack were again greatly inflated, with Haig wanting to capture all of the German positions to break the British army out into the open in one go, the classic objectives, while Rawlinson once again was preaching more caution. Once again, Haig would win this argument, and this would have the same effects as on July 1st, spreading the British artillery too thin. As I'm sure you can tell by how I'm discussing it already, the September 14th attacks are going to not go so well and not go as planned for the British and French, 
but that is a story that we will wait to tell until next episode. For those of you who want to f- want a far deeper, and some might say too deep, of a dive into the development of the tank before it made its debut in September 1916, you can head over to Patreon where I did two episodes looking with quite a bit of detail into its path through design and production in 1916. It makes for quite an interesting story. I hope you will join me back here next episode as the Battle of the Somme grinds on.